This is the Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts, your weekly look at what's happening in the environment and how it may impact your health and the health of your family. Welcome back. On the subject board today, how big companies are failing to meet their pledges to create less plastic waste. New York places a moratorium on cryptocurrency mining due to environmental concerns. Pennsylvania is about to get a hazardous waste dump right near homes and schools. And finally, our featured story of a world-famous soccer coach and her fight against toxic chemicals in synthetic turf fields. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty, so it looks as though the big companies are not doing what they promised to do with their plastic. Is that right? Right, and this is not an unfamiliar scenario. They've known for probably since they started you know, making plastic out of oil and gas that it would be a product that would be around forever. Yeah. So anyway, this was written in Cosmos Magazine by Ellen Fidian. The title is, Study Shows Big Companies' Pledges to Reduce Plastic Pollution Aren't Working. Mm-hmm. Corporate pledges to lower plastic pollution are not translating into lower plastic pollution, according to a new study. According to the research, voluntary commitments made by the world's biggest companies emphasize plastic recycling over lowering plastic production. While recycling is considered an important part of a circular economy, as of 2015, only around 9% of the world's plastic was recycled. 79% went to landfills, while 12% was incinerated, venting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. I might just add here that now it's only 5% of the world's plastic yeah, is being amount, recycled. Yeah, the percentage yeah. is going down. Yeah, the percentage is going down. The researchers based at Duke University examined the commitments made by 974 of the world's biggest companies, including the top 300 of the Fortune 500, and companies thought to have a large impact on plastic pollution. 72% of these companies had made some form of commitment to reducing plastic pollution. but. Analyzing each pledge, the researchers found large gaps in companies' plans. Most companies focused on increasing the recycled content of their plastics rather than emphasizing the reuse of items. The researchers also noted a focus on light weighting, making the same products out of smaller and lighter amounts of plastic. The Coca-Cola company, for example, is selling their product in lighter and smaller plastic bottles and trying to improve recycling rates by investing in larger recycling facilities. But they are opposing New York State's bottle bill, Mm -hmm. which is the bigger, better bottle bill that is uh, going to be coming up in January. I mean, the whole point of that bottle bill is to increase the amount of recycling. So if these companies are dedicated to increasing the amount of recycling, why would they be against the bottle bill? I'm not sure but they are opposing it. Um, It's logical for businesses to start reducing plastic where it is easiest, but it's more difficult or expensive to implement more powerful ideas to reduce plastic. Truly game-changing ideas such as transitioning from a linear economy to a circular economy have much potential, but are far more complex, costly, and time-intensive. This is important. Purchasing items and discarding them when they are no longer needed is our dominant consumption paradigm. It's the way it's been for many years, and it's hard to learn new things. And, uh, you know, sometimes government intervention is the only way. I really hope this bottle bill passes in New York. Right. Well, I just listened this afternoon to a, uh, a short clip of a new video that was put out by the same people that made the story of stuff, and now mm. it's called the story of plastic. Uh-oh. And it's amazing 
Yeah, everybody should look at it. Yeah. I mean, I'll put a I'll put a link up on the show yeah, page. Yeah, absolutely. But okay. just you know, and you know, they ended the article by saying roughly 11 million tons, 11 million tons of plastic flows into the ocean each year. And this number is expected to double by 2040. A UN report suggested earlier this year that stopping this trend will save governments $70 billion in cleanup costs. That's a lot of money, $70 billion. $70 billion. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's, of course, it's tax dollars. It's your, your, yeah, yeah. your I dollars mean, and my you dollars. Know, and, we're, and we're building new plastics manufacturing plants. That I, I mean, the know, oil and gas industry that, knows that, I don't that that's where their future is. That I don't understand. We're allowing people to build these gigantic, yeah. these are gigantic factories. Oh, yeah. I mean, this makes Amazon buildings look small. These are fantastically large buildings yeah. to create more plastic. Right. And they, and they are creating unbelievable toxicity around those plants. I mean, they are sacrifice zones for sure. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I heard about the crypto bill. This is very exciting. Well, yeah, we've been covering this for a while. This we whole have issue been covering of... this for a while. This is a New York Times article uh, written by Louis Ferre Saderni and Grace Ashford. The title is New York enacts a two year ban on some crypto mining operations. New York became the first state to enact a temporary ban on new cryptocurrency mining permits at fossil fuel plants, a move aimed at addressing the environmental concerns over the energy intensive activity. The legislation was signed by Governor Kathy Hochul, and I might add, after her election, and was the latest setback for the cryptocurrency industry, which had lobbied fiercely against the bill, but was unable to overcome a successful push by a coalition of left-leaning lawmakers and environmental activists. The legislation will impose a two-year moratorium on crypto mining companies that are seeking new permits to retrofit some of the oldest and dirtiest fossil fuel plants in the state into digital mining operations. It also requires New York to study the industry's impact on the state's efforts to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. Well, if they really study that properly, they will see that allowing the permits to this crypto mining is uh, you know, it's not gonna it's not gonna hack it. But anyway, the move in New York comes months after some other states had adopted more friendly policies toward the industry, offering tax incentives in hopes of luring crypto mining operations after China cracked down on the activity last year. But it also comes at a moment of intense turbulence and a potential crossroads for the cryptocurrency sector. Earlier this, earlier this month, the crypto exchange known as FTX suffered a swift and public collapse that led to its declaration of bankruptcy. The fall of what had been a trusted player in the new market has led to broader questions about the future of the exchange, as well as possible criminal charges for its principal, Sam Bankman-Fried. I think I think when a lot of people hear the word data mining, they think of you know, they think of mining. They don't understand that we're talking simply about setting up computers inside power plants and firing up those power plants. Right to provide the energy to drive the computers. That's right. what this is all about. There's right. actually no actual mining going on. We're no, not no, actually no, no, no. getting and currency out of the ground. understanding that these power plants are going to be powered by fracked gas. Or right. some other fossil fuel, right? Yeah, I mean, but it's, it's usually usually fracked gas because it's, you know, the proximity of these plants to Pennsylvania makes it a very easy source okay. to obtain. Okay, but the state legislature, which is controlled by Democrats, had passed the legislation in the waning hours of this year's legislative session that ended in June, 
Following successful lobbying efforts that also included winemakers and other concerned business owners upstate, where many of the existing mining operations are based. We keep talking about that one at Greenwich, that Greenwich plant, which is operating, and that, by the way, is not being affected because it already exists, um, but that's right on Seneca Lake. And it's not just the incredible amount of energy that is, you know, that is needed. I mean, this is an energy intensive proposition, crypto mining, right? But it's also using water. It's mm -hmm. also using a lot of water. So they're yeah. pulling it out of Seneca Lake in huge volumes, and then they're actually releasing it back into the lake at very, very high temperatures, which is having a huge environmental impact on the aquatic balance there in the, uh, in the, uh, in the lake. So it's always an industry versus the environment versus public health. Yeah, you mentioned that, by the way, that this was, um, this was a hot political issue so that the, the legislature passed it and it sat on Governor Hochul's desk for all this time until the That's election right. was over. See, I mentioned and that it was after her yeah. election that she, that she signed it. Yeah, because yeah. I, you it know. Was, it's, it, was a pre, it was pretty controversial. And also that Greenwich plant is, a, uh, let's be clear, not all cryptocurrency is the same. The cryptocurrency that's being mined by Bitcoin is especially energy intensive. And Correct. there's a worldwide pushback against Bitcoin because of its environmental right. footprint. And we have a mayor of New York City, Who's being Eric paid Adams, in Bitcoin. who loves cryptocurrency, yeah. who wants to see this happen in New York State. Well, so too bad. Okay, too bad, okay. right. What else you got? Okay, so this last one uh, was uh, published in Environmental Health News, written by Christina Marusik, and it is entitled, Pennsylvania's first proposed hazardous waste landfill would be near homes and schools. Oh boy. And the dateline is Pittsburgh. A landfill company based in Pittsburgh has applied for a permit to open the first hazardous waste landfill in the state of Pennsylvania, which some fear could threaten waterways and increase air pollution. Hazardous waste includes anything potentially dangerous or harmful to human health or the environment. It includes things like cleaning chemicals, paints and solvents, corrosive and toxic industrial waste, sludge from air pollution control units, and waste from the oil and gas industry, including potentially radioactive substances. Federal regulations require these waste products to be handled and disposed of with special care. The company that would build the new hazardous waste landfill, Max Environmental Technologies, is headquartered in Pittsburgh and operates two landfills in the nearby communities of Yukon and Bulger. The Yukon facility, which is about 29 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, stores and treats this type of waste, but is not permitted to dispose of it on site so that any waste that remains hazardous after treatment must be transported out of state for disposal. Pressure is on, Pennsylvania. Right? What, a, what a system. Holy yeah. cow. If Max's permit is granted, the company will construct a new hazardous waste landfill on its Yukon property, which is within one mile of 485 homes and only about two and a half miles from the Yo School District. Residents in the area have spent decades fighting to close the existing landfill, which is not a hazardous waste landfill, due to concerns that it's too close to homes and schools and fears that the hazardous pollution it emits is causing health problems. The community has been deemed a sacrifice zone, and this new landfill would be even closer to homes and closer to Sewickley Creek, which is a tributary of a river that is a drinking water source for many people downstream. Everyone who lives in this area, even those who are further away from the landfill, should be concerned. 
It's interesting that the fracking waste that comes out of the fracking operations in Pennsylvania is still not considered hazardous waste. No, it's even, considered... Even it's industrial waste. Industrial even waste. though it's... So they're not going to be getting all the fracking waste because they're bringing the fracking waste to New York State. You know, you can pay people. If you pay them enough money, you know, they'll let you put toxic chemicals on their land. But, of course... I guess they have to go somewhere. I mean, you know, normally they, they put sites like this as far away from people as they can. Yeah, sure. I mean, especially if it's got radioactive materials in it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like they put them, you know, under mountains and, you know. Out in, in Nevada. Now in Nevada or in remote places where there is no human sure. activity or, you yeah. know, certainly not homes and schools. But, you have but to... it's unusual to put a hazardous waste landfill this close to people's homes, so it's... You know, well, but you have to you have to transport it if you want to get to a place where there's no people around. So now you've got a transport problem because you're transporting this stuff on public roads and railroads and places where it could have an you could have an accident. Well, they're transporting it out of state right now because Pennsylvania does you know doesn't have a hazardous waste landfill. And Pittsburgh, of all places, I mean Pittsburgh has had so many environmental problems. Holy smoke! Yeah, you gotta hope for the best for the people of. Pittsburgh. Well, and the best scenario would be if the people of Pittsburgh, you know, rallied against this and made this not happen. Sounds like they're working on it. Yeah, they're working on it. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Increasing popularity of competitive sports programs has brought with it an increased demand for playing fields, particularly for fields which can withstand the demands placed on them by heavy play schedules. With future scholarships possibly riding on the successful performance of student-athletes, access to all-season high-quality sports fields has become a necessity. So it's easy to understand why so many schools and municipalities are considering and parents are demanding the installation of synthetic turf fields. Although they can be extremely expensive to install, they have the undeniable benefit of being virtually indestructible and playable in almost any weather condition. But as with many products and processes in which man believes he has improved on nature, it turns out there are a wide range of problems associated with synthetic turf, from its manufacturer using PFAS and other chemicals to its environmentally challenging disposal. But perhaps the most problematic is the threat it poses to the health of athletes while they play on it. I had the luxury of coaching at University of Washington for 24 years. So that means I coach the same kids in the same demographic on the same fields every year. So that includes kids going through summer camps. Um, it's a pretty tight-knit sporting community, so if you come to camp once, you're usually a return customer. So it's, it's a lot of times the same kids and the same level of players uh, 12 months out of the year. It's the same calendar. So I started in 1996 and never met anyone, especially a, a child, that had cancer. That's Amy Griffin, a member of the United States women's national soccer team that won the 1991 Women's World Cup and one of the most respected and successful coaches and goalkeeping specialists in the nation. As she says, she was the women's soccer coach at the University of Washington for 24 years 
She knows a lot about soccer, and over the years, she taught a lot of girls how to play the sport and how to be good sports. We would always go visit Children's Hospital, Seattle Children's, which is you know, probably a mile from our campus, and we'd visit kids that were sick that were soccer fans. The liaison there would connect us, and we'd always go visit, and sometimes not, not even soccer fans. We would go visit and just paint T-shirts and, you know, give the kids a, an hour of being normal, you know, and forgetting about being sick. Soccer, not science, was Amy's life. Coaching, advocating for the sport, and working as a broadcast commentator during the Women's World Cup Games and the 2000 Olympic Games kept her busy. Hundreds and hundreds of kids benefited from her knowledge and enthusiasm for soccer. And then, one day, things changed. Then all of a sudden, in 2009, two of the kids that I had coached, very same age, grew up playing on the very same practice fields, um, both were goalkeepers, and they both had lymphoma. This sounds weird, but we we're literally just joking around, just sort of casual conversation. And I'm like, man, what is it? What, what You two, you know, you two sillies. Everyone knows goalkeepers are a little bit out there. And now this, now, you know, sort of joking around. And, someone, and then one of them said, yeah, I wonder, what is it? That's weird. You know, maybe it's, you know, what's on the turf? And I said, you know what? I'm going to come back and find, find an answer out. So I initially went seeking an answer to prove to them that they were fine. I was not looking for anything serious. What was on the turf was crumb rubber infill from as many as 40,000 recycled tires, which is about 120 tons. Now, tires are made from some pretty toxic chemicals. Arsinogens arsenic, benzene, carbon black, which makes up to 40% of a tire, 1,3-butadine, trichloroethylene, and cadmium as well as proven neurotoxins, lead and mercury. If these chemicals were suddenly discovered on a grass athletic field, chances are good that the authorities would cordon off the area and people with hazmat suits would be summoned to remove the toxic chemicals. No one would be allowed on the field until the toxins had been removed. But in this case, millions of dollars had been spent converting a grass field into a modern synthetic turf field complete with tons of ground-up old vehicle tires, which were there to cushion players as they fell. I had never given it much thought. I had been like everyone else saying, what a great idea, we're recycling these tires, and not, not thinking about what's next, like what happens when these tires are old, what happened, I didn't know they were toxic, nothing, just oblivious. Amy Griffin was haunted by her two young athletes lying in the hospital with cancer, and she was determined to find out if the crumb rubber on the field could be the cause. So I went to a professor at University of Washington, and I went to a couple people. I went to our team doc, and I said, do you think this is weird that two of these goalkeepers have, you know, lymphoma? And they kind of said no, but then they said, you know what? I've always thought it was a really bad idea. You know, it's in the turf as tires, and tires have carcinogens in them. So then I just went and Googled, and it was, um, you know, two clicks away. Tires, the next tires have been known to, to have carcinogens in them. Carcinogens cause cancer. End of story. You know, I didn't get to go back and say, you guys are 100% fine. And so then I just started doing some digging. Each year, the parents of more than 15,000 children in the United States will hear the words, your child has cancer. It remains the number one cause of death by disease in children, 
Lymphoma is the third most common form of cancer in children, after leukemia and brain tumors. In the United States, about 2,200 people under the age of 20 are diagnosed with lymphoma each year. So, it was technically possible, although not likely, that Amy Griffin's two soccer goalies with lymphoma was just a coincidence. But it wasn't just the two goalies. Then my eyes were open just a little bit. And then after that, in 2009, it was, hey, we need you to come visit a child at Seattle Children's, and she has cancer. We're not, we're not allowed to ask, you know, why they're sick. We're just in there to make them smile. But my one connection is that we play soccer. So I always say, hey, how's it going? You know, hey, what position do you play? Well, it was, it was four of four that year that we're all goalkeepers. Four out of four. One hundred percent. And they were all goalkeepers, just as Amy had been 20 years before. But there were more. When it came up to nine people that I personally knew and had been connected with in 2009, I said, okay, what's different? The only thing different in my community right now are these fields. Everything else is, is the same. I'm going to make a list because I'm getting old and my memory's not great. And I'm sure I'm not going to bump into one, one more person, but just in case I do, I'm going to start making a list. And that nine turned to 15 pretty quickly. And then it made the local news. And then a lot of people came out of the woodwork and uh, people were extremely emotional about it. We had goalkeepers that, like I knew it was something. My doctor said it was, had to be something in the environment. Amy Griffin was pretty sure she knew what was at least partially responsible for the alarming number of soccer goalies who were developing lymphoma. But when she talked to people who should know, they were skeptical. I've had scientists say, well, I mean, if, if you had eaten maybe a teaspoon of it, you know, that would be terrible for you, but nobody's eating it. I said, well, actually, that. Then I started thinking about all the ways that goalkeepers more than anyone else would, we have this brutal relationship with the crumbs because we're on the ground diving around. If you watch a game, you're not going to see what a goalkeeper does. They're standing around most of the time, but at practice, easily hit the ground a hundred times or more. Crumb rubber sitting all by itself on the synthetic turf field brings some environmental concerns about runoff and outgassing, but it's when the crumbs are disturbed that the trouble really starts. For one thing, as the field becomes worn, the granules of rubber begin to wear too, and a lot of black dust is created dust that contains the cocktail of chemicals that make up tires. I'm the soccer coach, not a scientist, so I'm reading, well, what are the four pathways you can, you can get toxins and chemicals and things into your body? And they're all the ways that we would, you know, through absorption, you could inhale it and eat it through your pores, through your abrasions, and those are all four ways that we would come in contact with this on a daily basis. Absorption of chemicals through the skin can happen as athletes slide, fall, or lie on fields. Inhalation of chemicals can happen as chemicals volatilize into the air on warm or hot days. And as Amy Griffin noted, goalies tend to get specks of crumb rubber in their mouths as they dive for the ball and hit the ground. Accidental ingestion is almost impossible to avoid. And for players who get skin abrasions from sliding on turf, an open wound is a direct path of exposure. Amy's list was growing. We're up to 268 athletes, and that's not only soccer, but a high percentage. So there's 209, nine of those are soccer players. 
And the interesting part is the percentage has not changed since my list went public. The percentage of goalkeepers is 60%. So 125 of those 209 are goalkeepers. The exposure to the toxic chemicals in chrome rubber is only one of the real health concerns associated with synthetic turf. Tires are black, and if you look at a synthetic turf field from the air, it's mostly black, not green. In the summer, synthetic turf fields can soak up the heat and be dangerously hot. You can see the heat waves coming off of it, and there have been plenty of times where I've, I've been out and put a thermometer just an inch down where it's on an 82 degree day. It's been, you know, over 140 degrees on the turf. And I've seen instances where people's molded cleats, not the, not the metal ones, but the plastic slash rubber ones are, um, have melted. And so, you know, you talk about the, the heat exposure as well. On a hot day, you have two games in a day or a long practice. Um, and we all know, you know, that that's not a great thing. So it's, you could walk from a grass field across the street to a field turf field and you literally, the temperature, you know, it just drains you. The controversy over the use of synthetic turf fields was reignited last year with the injury to Odell Beckham Jr. in Super Bowl 56, when he was lost for the game due to a knee injury after his leg was caught on the synthetic turf at SoFi Stadium. He's getting up, so Beckham will need some attention as the medical staff comes out. Players across the NFL jumped on social media to express their support for grass fields and their dislike of synthetic turf. At any stage of athletics, injuries are much more common on synthetic turf. I even think just the, the chronic injuries from the surface being hard, much harder, is you know more chronic strains and sprains and back injuries. And then you know if you slide tackle or you fall, it it sort of shreds up your skin. So, are synthetic turf fields with ground-up tires safe for kids to play on? The EPA claims, and I quote. Studies to date have not shown an elevated health risk from playing on fields with tire crumb rubber, unquote. That said, the agency has begun a multi-year, multi-million dollar study to determine once and for all whether synthetic turf fields with crumb rubber pose a health risk to athletes. And with the turf industry helping to guide the research, we can reasonably expect that the study will be inconclusive. After all, billions of dollars in profit are at stake. Remember how we used to see tires on docks, tire swings, tires on playgrounds? They've all been removed because they're toxic. So they've all been removed, but now we are going to break them up into millions of pieces. So the surface area of these tires is exponentially much larger, and the pieces after you run on them get much smaller to the point where they're dust. You're not allowed to bury them because it's too dangerous to our environment. You're not allowed to burn them dangerous for our envi environment, but we can let kids play on them. I'm very passionate about it. Like, the more I learn, the more I think it's just really a stupid idea. And so do other people. So it's funny because I think everyone knows about this topic because it's the world I live in. And then I just get in a casual conversation and the topic is, you know, I'll bring it up but for some unrelated reason. Maybe I'm just talking about our kids in sports or whatever. Then I realized that actually nobody knows about it because when you, you present it to them, they're like, what a dumb idea. 
Amy Griffin, world-famous soccer player and coach, in an interview we conducted last year. For more scientific information about the problems associated with synthetic turf, please visit our website, grassrootsinfo.org, and click on Current Issues. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of the show. Thanks for listening. Before we go, I wanted to put in a pitch for Grassroots Environmental Education, the science-based nonprofit organization that Patty and I started more than 20 years ago. Over those years, we've had some remarkable success in educating consumers and policymakers about environmental exposures and how they can impact our lives. From fracking to pesticides to wireless radiation to plastic pollution, we take on difficult issues and find solutions that work for everyone. Green Street News is just one of many programs and projects we are involved in. You can learn more about our work at our website, www.grassrootsinfo.org. All of this is made possible by donations from individuals like you, people who care about our children, each other, and the future of our planet. We're very grateful to all of our financial supporters, and we hope that listeners to Green Street News will consider making an end-of-year gift to Grassroots. Thank you, and happy holidays to all.